You're listening to Tasting Together with Maroki Tong and Andre Fruit. Maroki, I am exceptionally tired, and it's not because I flew in today. Um, we're recording this on November 7th. I have just spent the past two days in Niagara harvesting Chardonnay, sorting Chardonnay, uh, taking reception of Chardonnay, and it is, um, for all intents and purposes, a challenging year in Niagara, but I think we're going to get some good juice. Uh, is um, What was I going to say? Do you still love Chardonnay after all of this? Oh, more <laughs> than ever. More than ever. The more labor ever. is worth it. But um, so something... I'm pu- sad I missed this harvest this year. <laughs> I was in Nova Scotia, which we will be able to talk uh, talk about a little bit more in the podcast um, a little bit further in, but it's they actually finished harvest out there, and I kept asking them whether harvest was running late for them just because I know how delayed it was in Ontario, but it looks like they were on time. Oh, I'm, je- <laughs> I'm jealous. I'm jealous. I mean, I feel bad for people making Cabernet Sauvignon in Niagara. But anyways, you and I, because we were both busy doing other things, missed uh, an amazing opportunity this weekend to check out a, a film that had uh, several screenings. It was screened in, in St. Catherine, screened in, screened in Toronto, and um, we're lucky enough to have um, a director join us. This makes me really happy because the, you know, for those of you who don't know, I have a former background as an actor and a producer, and that was the first 10 years of my life. Uh, you know, defying my Asian parents was supposed to become an engineer and I decided to go to school for theater out of all things and, you know, spent a decade in the, in the trenches of the entertainment and arts industry. So this is like bringing my two worlds together. <laughs> so we are joined by <laughs> Maya Gallus of Red Queen Productions. Her previous movie was The Heat, A Kitchen Revolution that you can see on TVO. But we're here to talk about something that's near and dear to both of our hearts and that is Crush message in a bottle um i had a chance to check out the trailer and give me a second i'm gonna throw to a quick clip of said trailer i think you need to have a certain obsession to make great wine year after year it has to be really the thing you do if you have a glass of wine in your hands that's a two-year commitment by the winemaker there's a story in the wine right and you're trying to coax the story out but every year is so different you know, Mother Nature reigns supreme. The whole farm's a living system. So you, you want to try and look after the best that you can. And I was very excited to see someone take the, the time, the love, the attention to capture the stories in Ontario, but to capture the stories in Ontario with, um, I think, some voices that certainly don't get enough attention. People like Shiraz Madiar and people like... Uh, Anne-Marie Saunders of, of the Saunders Vineyard, and then, of course, uh, Thomas Batchelder and Kelly Mason. But um, I know I've just thrown a whole bunch of names at you, but we are joined by Maya Gallus. How's it going, Maya? Uh, I'm so happy to be here and to talk about this film and the extraordinary uh, people I discovered in this uh, pocket of Niagara. Mm-hmm. And Andre, you know, was mentioning the Saunders family and Kelly Mason and, and Shiraz, and I think this is a really good way to dive right into the question I have, because so for, for me, having I entered the wine industry professional, uh, professional, I say this in quotes because I started off just as an Instagram blogger. And but I've had a passion for the industry for over 10 years. But I think there was a naivety that I had when I finally 
participated in the industry at large where I realized that wine still suffers from an image within the leadership of the industry and the media portrayal of the industry and in generally maybe even just the uh, the makeup of the industry of being white and male. So mm-hmm. from the outside, because I know you said that the wine world was fairly new for you when you decided to make this documentary. Did you see this as an issue within the industry when you started making your documentary? Oh, for sure. I mean, because I had made The Heat, which was uh, looking at female chefs uh, working in a in a very male-dominated culture, that's what originally led me to uh, look at uh, the world of wine. A number of people said to me, you should really look at uh, the world of wine. It's very male-dominated. And absolutely, it's um, it's white male-dominated, it's Eurocentric, and it's also dominated uh, generally by uh, people who have a lot of money unless they happen to be um, born to a farming family and haven't inherited uh, their vineyard so uh, originally i was going to do something a little more international and then covid hit and i turned my lens uh, uh closer to home and i knew about prince edward county but i i i didn't really know about niagara as this um amazing artisanal region uh, my impression of niagara as i think is true unfortunately for many people is that it was sort of stodgy old school uh, and, you know, dominated by the bus tours and very large commercial wineries. And then I discovered, oh, there are these passionate um, people who are dedicated to low intervention farming and winemaking and using wild ferments and really doing it old school and doing it the hard way. And and uh, both wine growers and winemakers. And, and in fact, Henry Saunders, who you mentioned of Saunders Vineyard, is taking it a step further with organic and uh, regenerative the culture, which is really uh, cutting edge in, in uh, grape farming. Man, I, I don't did even, I answer your question? <laughs> you com- well, you completely did, but not only that, like you, you sort of struck a nerve with me. Like we have a whole list of, of questions here, but I mean, what you're saying really resonates. Like I started my company, the the ADX Wine Company, in 2015. Got serious about it in 2017, and really my impression of Niagara was actually very similar to yours. Like I started as a wine journalist in 2010 and there is a a renaissance that's really starting to happen in Niagara on the lake where it's Mm -hmm. no longer being dominated by the tour bus. And exactly like you said, when I was harvesting Chardonnay on Sunday, it was at Irv Wilms farm, which is right in the heart of Niagara on the lake. And, you know, when you talk about the change that's taking place, it's one of the things that's exciting about your film is you talk to Thomas Batchelder and I think if there is any catalyst that is really you know that really lit the fuse in this renaissance that's happening in Niagara it it can really go to Thomas um you know it's just fascinating that that you were able to to lead right to that I know Thomas already is larger than larger than life um I guess just sort of getting to the, the question like we haven't seen the documentary yet. Maroki and I have both been traveling and very busy, and we're looking forward to watching it uh, tonight. It'll be available on TVO.org. Um, what is it about? Like, where? What is the, the, the main story that drives the documentary mm-hmm, that you put mm-hmm. together? Well, so the intention was to uh, follow some people through uh, the seasons of uh, the vineyard and cellar and uh, because I was I was originally very interested in natural winemaking, and then that led to low intervention, which is, um, I guess, a step removed from natural, but really, as Thomas explains in the film, to do as little as possible. And what I really uh, discovered is that all of them, in their way, have a very profound connection to the land. Not only are they stewards of the land, but each of them have 
an individual connection. Obviously, in Thomas's case, it's about terroir and exploring the different terroirs of Niagara and showcasing that. And um, he is a he's a brilliant winemaker. And what I, I love about him, the reason I wanted to include him in the film is because there are many talented winemakers in Niagara, but he's really about uplifting the community as well. And um, um, Shiraz Motiar has had a, a long connection with Malavoir and is um, uh, has really developed a reputation with his Gamay in particular, but a really uh, passionate and dedicated winemaker who also has his own vineyard and is really committed to sustainability and to preserving the land uh, from encroaching developers, which is a problem that is happening everywhere. Uh, Anne-Marie Saunders, her uh, family, her parents, her father, Warren Saunders, a pioneering um, farmer who passed away this year at the age of 102. Uh, Warren and Ivy Saunders uh, went to the Beansville bench as farmers. It was a mixed farm at that point. And then uh, they switched over to to the European grapes. And now they're, they're known for um, a farm that provides some of the most... They have a special place on the bench, but they also, because of their regenerative and organic viticulture, have some of the most beautiful grapes in the region. And they really were operating under uh, under the radar. I mean, they're they're also rare because they were a black family that arrived in this very white uh, place. And uh, and Marie speaks in the film about how her mother was very. Uh, powerful woman who you know takes no shit from anybody and just was very clear <laughs> yeah. you take up your space and um uh, sadly i don't want to give too much away but uh, her mother passed away from parkinson's which uh, the family felt anecdotally was connected to the uh, pesticides and herbicides because they farmed conventionally originally and and that has certainly been documented in in um around the world there are cases now coming up and in class action suits as well so it was as a result of that that uh ivy saunders asked her children to switch over to organics and and it's wow. a big it's a big ask in in such a humid region with um you know in this cool climate where things happen as you know very fast so um she committed to that she and her brother leslie saunders and and then took it a step further because uh, of what's happening with the climate around the world. Okay, and then, I think I think we I think we have to save some of this for when we sit down and watch yeah, yeah. the documentary. So, there, sorry to interrupt you, Maya, but uh, we won't need to make sure that people listening to this actually take the time to go to tvo.org to to watch it. But um, for those of for those people who don't know, like the Saunders story is one of like the underdog stories in Niagara, and also like Anne Marie is um, very soft spoken. And I mean, with all the people that you interviewed, like Shiraz and Thomas and Kelly all have these like larger than life personas when you're in a room with them. So like, I really love that you took the time to to profile that family and the viticulture that they're doing in the history, the history of it as well. And they definitely are pushing the envelope in terms of, I mean, that's the thing about all the people that you interviewed in the, uh, in the, the documentary when we talk about the way people look at Ontario wine is pushing quality higher. And these are people who are putting quality quality first but it's also putting sustainability as a part of that which is uh, critically important to the industry 
But also the, the yes, personal and, and, people story too, right? Like like the fact that the, the Saunders family was able to carve a space out in Niagara when it was yeah. as white dominated as it was. And yeah, it's it's yeah. hard, you know, you talked about how Ivy claims space. It's extremely hard to claim space for yourself as a, as a BIPOC person in the 70s. Right? Absolutely. Like I, I, and, well, well, I know very briefly... Yeah, even today. I mean, you know, I I hear about the stories that my my parents went through when they immigrated over to Canada in the 70s. I know what I go through just from my own lived experiences and the experiences that people share with me. So they they really have some sort of like like some form of legacy. I'm actually really excited to see more of their story in your documentary, Maya, because especially it's funny that you talked about how like Saunders is sort of underrated for me. Their name has been nothing but always shiny to me. Like I know the mm. Saunders Vineyard having drank and wine from made from Saunders Vineyard. Yeah, I have known yeah. uh, them of nothing but being a prestigious wine. So I'm actually interested in their origin story. As we actually wrap up the interview here, actually, so like this is actually a good question. I think um, worth asking. Maybe Andre has other opinions, but <laughs> you can tell Andre and I, we're we're we've bought the ticket. We've drank the Kool Aid. We're ready to watch this documentary. We're here for. We're both wine nerds, but. What when you made this documentary? What audience is Crush made for? Because this is the kind of story I think more people than just us winos and wine enthusiasts should be Absolutely. getting, should be watching. Well, you know, and it's a great question. And can can I actually just um, answer that? But also just say a quick thing about Kelly Mason because she's also really important in the film for this reason. Because there, uh, yes, there are more women winemakers now, but most of the women. Who are making wine or on vineyards that uh, we read about around the world, including in Niagara, come to it through uh, family, or they. She's unusual because she purchased her own vineyard. Through you'll learn the origin story of that, and is doing it on her own without financial help from uh, uh, anyone um, backing her. And uh, it's it's really. And making beautiful, really committed to working with wild ferment, which again is a highly risky thing. But separate from the wine nerd aspect of the film, what what I'm hearing from people who have seen it is, you know, wow, I didn't know anything about wine or I don't even care about wine, but I love this film. This film speaks to me because this film, it is about wine, but it's not really. It's about passion and dedication and artisanal craftsmanship it's about a relationship to the land and stewardship of the soil a relationship to nature and it's it's about um what kind of a world do you want to live in and what matters to you and if 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 their stories resonate with you look around and um buy local think about what that means supporting local i don't speak about that in the film but i hope that people who watch this realize there's something really amazing happening here on our own home turf and um it's time that we um uh explore it and celebrate it and it speaks to larger questions around diversity and inclusivity uh, climate change responsibility there, there are many layers and themes that are explored in the film i love that i love that okay well <laughs> once again for our listeners <laughs> Um, it is airing on TVO tonight, and then you can stream it um, on TVO.org. And I believe you also said that Crush was available on YouTube as well, YouTube streaming? Yes, yeah, so Crush is available on YouTube and uh, TVO today. It'll be up, uh, basically it goes to air at 9 o'clock and then right at the same time or a minute later it, it goes on online. So people can, and there's a TVO app as well. There are different ways for sure, and it's across Canada, and it's free, so... People can um, 
see it. And um, if they want to check out uh, The Heat, that's still on streaming as well. Maya, thank you I so much. I really for, want to watch that one too. Maya, thank you so much for giving us the time. And uh, as someone who has skin in the game and is running a wine business in Niagara, thank you for mm-hmm. taking the time to share these important stories. And I know we said this at the end of the interview, but if you want to answer this really, really quick, because Maroki and I will, 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 will post amble this really quickly. When you filmed this documentary, it was during the 2021 vintage. That's correct. Yes. Yes. Did, did you realize how much of a shit show it was for the people making wine that year? Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I didn't realize it was going to be, but when we were filming, I mean, the humidity and the rain was so bad that the grapes were in terrible condition and everyone was freaking out and panicking <laughs> and, and it's documented in the film. You'll see that it's, uh, it's really, really quite dramatic and, and heartbreaking, but it's also a, a film about resilience. And ultimately, I, I think one of the messages is Mother Nature reigns supreme and you can't control it's out of your hands. So all you can do is um, do the best you can. Thanks, Maya. I really love the conversation about eco-consciousness because I know that's something that I want to talk um, about very shortly when I revisit my experiences with Wines of Nova Scotia. But Andre, I want to bring it back home to an event <laughs> that you're planning on uh, having in a, what is it, a couple of weeks? Next week? It's next weekend. Oh my it's God. Next, next weekend. weekend's already the middle of November. Oh. Yeah. Yep, we are in the middle of November. Well, I guess two weeks from now, we've still got the uh, we've still got the uh, Western and East finals to to play. And I'm I am in a weird position. I think many people who uh, have followed me on on Instagram um, at Andre Wine Review, uh, I'm unashamedly uh, a Prairie boy at heart. I grew up in Saskatchewan, and as a result, I am a Saskatchewan Rough Rider fan. I spent many years working in media, being teased by co-hosts and colleagues that. The CFL isn't a real sport. Well, those guys can all pound sand. I bleed green. I love the Rough Riders. But this year is one of those tough years where (laughs) I have no idea who I'm going to cheer for on Grey Cup Sunday. So that's where I throw a Grey Cup party every year. I've only ever missed one Grey Cup in my adult life, and that was in 2014 while I was in France for Beaujolais Nouveau. And I think if there's anything that's a good excuse to miss a Grey Cup, that's it. And um, yeah. Yeah, so this year, it's going to be about the food. And I'm really sad because you sent me the Google invite to attend, (laughs) and then I realized I'm going to be in Hong Kong. And I think being in Hong Kong is a pretty good reason to be missing uh, the Grey Cup. I've never experienced one with you in all the years we've we've been friends. (laughs) I don't know if it's because I kind of like clearly eschewed my lack of interest for football. and (laughs) But I mean, that's okay. So, so, So that's the thing, though. Okay, so that's the thing. So Grey Cup at Andre's house. I am a big... Rough Rider fan, but I am not a yell and scream at the TV kind of fan. And the thing is, I think we all have those diehards either in our lives, lives where it's just like, you know, they might ask you to go to a Leafs game or a Jays game and you're just like, you're not the person I want to watch a sports game with because you're just embarrassed at how into the, the game that they get. And, you know, I, I think casual fandom is good I, I like I like the idea of wearing colors I'm actually wearing a Saskatchewan Rough Rider uh, hooded jacket right now as we're recording this that's sort of my wardrobe these days but like my my rule is I want people who like who come to my party is you need to be liking the game enough to pay half attention to it like I don't want people basically don't block the screen in my house because there's people who are there to watch the game but if you get obnoxious you will be removed from the house and then, you know, 
pub food, homemade pub food. I've, I've got my smoker, I've, I've got the barbecue, and it's it's kind of like, you know, the truly, for real, unofficial end of barbecue season. I know we've talked about how I don't think there's a real end to barbecue season, but I mean, this is kind of like the last big thing that you do in Canada before Christmas comes, right? And it's like, this is the, this is what the average person, this is when the average person would probably stop barbecuing. And I'm <laughs> to talk to you about the food because I think that might have been another reason why I never really attended Super Bowl parties yeah. or sports parties when people invited me to them, even if they highlighted the social element because in my memory, and now this is, this is Moroccan or 20s, it's always like frozen pizza or some really cheap fried food, which, uh, for someone from for my body, my for my for my love of food, I have a very sensitive digestive system. I have to be very careful with when I choose to indulge. And usually, eating that kind of food was not usually the thing I would want to break my habits for. And I, but you, when I spoke to you, you're like, you're like, I said, oh, Andre, you can talk about it for ten minutes. And you're like, no, I'm gonna need twenty <laughs> minutes minimum to talk about the food. Now, I, I'm probably gonna hold you to less than twenty no, no, minutes. I, but you know, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna keep. I'm curious. Gonna... I'm curious to know why. Why is the food that you're about to make for Grey Cup? And you said pub food, which for me brings up all these particular images. But you made it sound like that there's going to be some sort of gastron, like some sort of gastronomy that is more epic than merely calling it pub food. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I'm going to keep this short. It's actually something that I've noticed happening in in the league. So this is my my call to action for people who. Uh, like I said, are maybe casual fans and want to check things out because uh, tickets to the CFL are more affordable than a lot of other professional leagues. When I was in Saskatchewan for the Labor Day Classic, which unfortunately was the last game that my team won this year, they are not in the playoffs, um, we were able to get fresh rolls in the stadium in Regina of all places. Like Gone are the days of it being just Pizza Pizza and Molson Canadian. Every stadium that I've been to in... Um, the CFL, so that would be Hamilton, Toronto, Regina, are all offering craft beer offerings. So the whole idea is, I think the food game, not just in Andre's house, but across the board, has been elevated. Uh, the food offerings, I love going to Tim Hortons Field in Hamilton. It's the second best place in the league to watch a football game, after Saskatchewan, obviously. But like we go there and we can plan on eating. It's not super stupid expensive. They got craft beer. So in my house, what we're going to be doing, I, I like to keep it relatively simple. Simple. I love doing chicken wings, uh, but I don't fry my wings. I smoke the wings and toss them and sauce them oh. after the fact. Okay, uh, we're going to be doing some homemade burgers, likely picking up some uh, craft sausages from Starsky in town in Hamilton. And I'm just thinking my call to action for all the sports fans is to um, ditch the chains, support the mom and pop shops. If you don't want to make it yourself or, uh, you know, up your game, make your get, be, be the hero of your own sporting event party. Oh, that sounds good. Okay. Now I'm beginning to have FOMO for, for a gray cup. Now the oh. question for you, Andre is, are you going to be, wait, 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 you said, Oh, I, oh, I was going to say, who I don't know who I'm going to be cheering for this year. So with Saskatchewan being out, uh, so the 11th, that's this upcoming weekend. It's going to be Toronto, Montreal, and Winnipeg and BC. My nightmare scenario is if it's a tr- um, a Toronto-Winnipeg Grey Cup final. Because Toronto are big rivals with Hamilton. So if I cheer for Toronto, my neighbors might hate me. And Winnipeg and Saskatchewan have a strong rivalry. If I cheer for Winnipeg, my family might hate me. So do I cheer for Winnipeg or Toronto if that's the scenario? You just sit staunchly neutral. All you do is just talk <laughs> about the gameplay in a completely I neutral hope way. I they're having fun. <laughs> All right, you went to Nova like Scotia. You went to Nova Scotia, and we're we're trying to keep the these tight. And you actually, uh, uh, you 
you brushed up on your journalism skills. You you did some stand ups. <laughs> I think for me, it's just you know I have such a huge passion for emerging wine regions, and this past summer, wines of Nova Scotia was so kind to. Uh, provide us with a bunch of Tidal Bay, which is their Appalachian wine. And they're the only Appalachian wine in Canada. They're the only named Appalachian of Canada and something that I hope that other provinces can take a page out of their playbook for. But, um, you know, there's nothing like tasting in the region itself. So I made the tri- road trip out to Annapolis Valley so I could finally taste at the wineries of, you know, of, of beverages that I've had in, uh, in Ontario. Now, those of you who, visit your LCBO or your local bottle shop, I'm sure probably the most well-known name of Nova Scotia is Benjamin Bridge, which is a sparkling house. Um, their focus is on sparkling wine. And I was super lucky because Benjamin Bridge is one of the most well-known Nova Scotian wineries. They're a well-known tourist destination, but because it was winding down and being just a little bit more quiet, I had the chance to meet up with um, the ho- uh, hospitality specialist there, Ryan Isner, where we- he shared with me one of their projects that I've had my eye on for a while, which is their underwater cellaring and bottle aging process. Tell me all about the underwater quest wine and why you decided to go about it and the influence you think it had on aging underwater. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so our underwater quest here at Benjamin Bridge is made up solely of Pinot Noir, of course. Um, what it actually is, is a 2011 Blanc Noir um, that was put underwater in the Atlantic Ocean in Beausoleil's Oyster Farm. Um, and I can't tell you exactly where or pinpoint the location, um, but it was put um, approximately 30 feet under the water. Um, and we put approximately 1,500 bottles there under the water um, to see the effects of aging within the depths of the sea. Um, and as you might have heard um, in the more recent years about wines that's come out of shipwrecks, um, you know, folks have been finding, you know, age-old champagnes that are on shipwrecks, um, really seeing um, what the qualities come through um, in those wines, um, of having that proximity with the cork, the really only um, surface that's um, available um, to have any um, perception to the water um, and that all that salt water, I should say, um, coming through the cork and penetrating through that cork, um, allowing for a distinct salinity. So the maritime um, wine region already has a distinct salinity, as we were chatting about earlier, um, coming through in the wines, and this just adds a whole nother layer um, of having those distinct products coming through um, with that unique maritime salty air-esque um, coming through in your wines, and that's why we really love our underwater quest. Um, a fun adventure um, headed up by our then head winemaker, or sorry, our then um, assistant winemaker, Alex Morozov, um, with this unique project and proposition um, to have something that was ever so similar to a shipwrecked aged wine. I guess the final thing is, how does it taste? (laughs) Um, It tastes absolutely delicious. Um, As a bottle that's, you know, uh, distinctly high in price point, I had the privilege to enjoy it, and it was a phenomenal value um, that came through um, a few seasons ago in our BB Club trio. Um, And our BB Club, of course, got exclusive access to this at the time. Um, But as a Blanc Noir that's already um, a stellar wine, um, aged extensively on Lees, um, coming through, with a much higher complexity after spending um, just about a year under the water. Um, It really is a phenomenal sparkler um, for anyone to enjoy at a dinner party and certainly present um, to their family and friends. So, Maroki. Yes? Did you get to taste that wine? I did not. They basically are sold out. They keep a lot of it for their wine club members, too. And I I, I will fully admit, I went online to figure out how much it was going to burn a hole in my wallet 
And I, I looked at the price. I think it was listed in the 200 ish dollar range. And I was like, you know what? I might be ready to drop the money on this if, uh, <laughs> if it was in stock, but it's not. So maybe Andre, you and I need to chip in and get it. Cause I think it's really cool. And I'll share pictures of bottles, uh, of the bottle on my social media. Amazing. When, um, around the time this goes live, but you get to see like all the kind of like, um, imprintings of the crustaceans that are kind of camped out around the bottle and it's one of those things that I've never really thought about the per- like the cork permeability and I-, I would think the cork would possibly disintegrate and a fun fact that he told me off off air was that apparently out of all the bottles that they they put underwater to age none of them exploded none of them got damaged they all went out and they were all consumed and they were all enjoyed you know apart from just the the novelty of the work that goes into making a wine in this style it's just one of my favorite things where there's certain parts of wine production that are quite conservative you know like when something off the wall gets to market like blue wine like it's always a flash in the pan but when you see ultra premium producers really pushing the envelope of production i always find that fascinating i think it's a little bit like you know what they say about luxury car manufacturers is that everything that is state-of-the-art in a mercedes in 2023 is going to eventually be in every toyota corolla in 2033 and i think that's just one of the things i don't know maybe we'll see more underwater aged wines in the future from nova scotia or from elsewhere Mm-hmm. I think it's generally really cool. And if you look, if you're kind of, you know, when he was alluding to how wine is being taken from, from shipwrecks, it just shows the, the power of, I guess, like corks. And <laughs> when you think about permeability, when you're aging something in a cellar, it is air going in you know, air going in and, and and similarly when you're underwater, that pressure, it's not like you're just getting water seeping into the bottle. That's not what's happening. You're getting just kind of this, this transference of molecular structures and that's what's making the wine as amazing as it is. And that's sort of why, you know, why wines of Nova Scotia, I know in like the first brew that I tried from them, I was calling it mermaid wine because I was saying it had the salinity in the air. And I remember asking, I was like, is this me just making it all up? But Ryan said to me, no, 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 you know, the Bay of Fundy actually, uh, you know, channels into their valley and the air blows like the air, the sea air blows into the valley. So of course you're going to get that, that, that terroir influence in, in Nova Scotian wine. So I think that's really cool. Now, when you talk about pushing the envelope, that actually brought me to thinking about my visit to Planters Ridge, where I was speaking to Wendy Collins, who's the retail and hospitality manager there, because the, you know, Nova Scotia is cool. It's cool climate. It's cooler than Ontario. They do a lot of hybrids. Uh, Tidal Bay, their Appalachian wine, I think one of their requirements is that at least 50% needs to be made of hybrid grapes. And I, you know me, I'm a champion of hybrid grapes. You literally just told me how on the crush pad you were speaking with your winemaker and he turned his nose up at hybrids. But I think hybrids are the future. And Wendy really speaks to the proof in the pudding to why hybrids is making a stand in the fine wine world. They're really important for our climate, one, for um, just for for the last couple years of challenges that we've had. So we have to rely heavily on our hybrid varieties. Um, and traditionally, we've all kind of celebrated our vinifera. And, uh, you know, the customers have come asking for vinifera. But, you know, from these recent you know, export missions around the world, um, you know, other wine writers and wine authority people are really excited about the hybrids. Because um, they're new and they're different, um, and they're you know they, they our Nova Scotia wines 
have a very specific, unique kind of quality to them that are really zippy and exciting. Uh, and yeah, if you think about it, we've only been making wines from hybrid varieties for a couple of decades, you know, whereas Vinifera, we've been crafting into, you know, wines for centuries around the world. Um, so the quality of the hybrids in winemaking, you know, has been growing exponentially and we've been getting a lot of international recognition and there's something to be celebrated about them and yeah, just need to be elevated. As much as I am still forever critical of hybrids, um, I agree with what Wendy said, that hybrids are essential to the growth of a region, especially in, in a cool climate, and they are getting better, but I'm still, I don't think they're there yet for, it's certainly not for Ontario, as much as I love Tidal Bay. I would drink Tidal Bay, I drink Tidal Bay 10 out of 10 times, 100 days over 100 over most of the red <laughs> hybrids in Ontario, and this is no shots that... Ontario is just I don't know we can make Pinot Noir <laughs> it was an interesting convert it was it was interesting what Wendy said about how long we've been working with certain varieties yes. right like that she said we've been making things with noble uh, with the nifera for hundreds of years and we've only been working with hybrids for a few decades and that means that we just stand to improve if, you, if it is still a fairly new grape to be working with, we probably haven't figured out how to master them yet. And if they are getting international claim, I think that's that's it. Like in the end, we can all say all the things we want, but critics and top wine drinkers and buyers are drinking hybrid are, are drinking hybrid grapes. I I don't remember which uh, Michelin star restaurant it was, but I know when I was down in the Finger Lakes, there was one uh, sparkling producer who who was making a lot of wines out of hybrids. Um, their wine got picked up by Michelin restaurant. So, yep. you know what? If someone's dropping the money on it, the quality is there, yep. is all I got to say on it, right? Um, but, you know, like, and then the final thing that I was super surprised about, you know, um, this is a callback to to Crush and, and Maya's documentary about eco-conscious decisions in winemaking. Um, you know, one of the things we talk about the challenges in Ontario and towards being more being sustainable, being low intervention or being organic is that, we are cool and we're humid and it's hard to be a certified biodynamic or certified organic winer just because of the, the, the disease pressures and the climate pressures that we have as a region. And for me, I thought, surely Nova Scotia would have even more struggles. But Lightfoot and Wolfville, the, the final winery I visited, is certified Demeter Biodynamic. And I that just blew my mind. I was super lucky to have the chance to catch up with Rachel Lightfoot of Lightfoot and Wolfville. It's um she's part of the family of the of the family owned winery. They're eighth generation farmers and just talk about how they managed to upkeep biodynamic processes and continue to champion biodynamic farming in Nova Scotia. I guess when it comes to organic and biodynamic farming, which is, you know, the approach that, that we farm here at Lightfoot and Wolfville, um for me, uh, number one, organic as a baseline or a form of regenerative uh, farming that is putting more into the soil than we're taking out um, just makes sense when we look at the future and we look at the state of where we are in the world right now with climate change and um, realizing that we just need to do better with our farming practices. Um, we've been farming here on this land for my sisters and I would be the fourth generation. So um, throughout that time, uh, it was my great grandmother's farm. She lived here and farmed here and lived to be uh, 108 years old, believe it or not. <laughs> and 
she lived very much um, what today we would call organic or biodynamic. It was a nat- more natural way of farming. She didn't have you know any word for it, but it was using more natural remedies. So shunning synthetic fertilizers or you know chemical-based herbicides. It was kind of um, working more in harmony with the land and with nature and making uh, composting, you know, waste from the, the livestock and using that in the garden. And so my dad grew up here learning from her those methods. And when we later decided to diversify the family farm into organic and biodynamic and learn about, um, you know, the, the practices involved with that and composting and soil health, it really resonated to him because it was very similar to the way that his grandmother farmed. And so she was really the inspiration for us and just looking to improve the land and um, make sure that we're uh, looking after the soil and making a product of quality. So for us, we really want to make the best wines possible for Nova Scotia. We're really um, invested in that. That's our, our passion is trying every year, looking at each vintage as an opportunity to um learn and apply our learnings from the last vintage we get one shot every year to sort of learn as much as we can and so in our kind of young history as a winery that's really been been what we've been trying to do and I think that um, biodynamics goes and organic farming goes hand in hand with that because we're uh, I think to best express a sense of place and make wines that are terroir driven and, and carry that um you know, uniqueness of Nova Scotia in the bottle, it makes sense to be looking after the land, and that's the best way to do that, to, you know, a healthier soil, in short, hopefully um, healthier vines, and a more resilient um, overall, uh, you know, farm system, and hopefully at the end of the day, uh, better quality wines. (laughs) I love that you said yes at the end of that interview. (laughs) <laughs> and and to clarify, I believe they're eighth generation farmers, but when she said fourth generation, I think fourth generation in, in Nova Scotia and at the winery. I, I think what is what I was thinking about, you know, Maya's words from earlier and then now Rachel's words, it was the concept of if you take care of the land, you'll get the sense of place. And yeah. I think what happens is that when you have, you know, uh, when you have, you know, using um, commercial farming practices or like like using a lot of chemicals or using a lot of mono uh, monoculture farming you sort of strip the land of its sense of place like it sort of becomes mass made right like when you make things on mass it loses its character it becomes just uh, bland and and singular in some ways i mean it's called monoculture for for a reason so the idea that if you took care of the land if you implement regenerative farming if you let like the the entire ecosystem of of animals nature and soil work together you're going to get the strongest sense of place makes a lot of sense to me yeah and i mean you know i i love the fact that there's people really pushing the envelope with things like biodynamics and organic farming and it's something i i spend a lot of time thinking about as a business owner where you know i am not convinced that subscribing to one of these specific um sets are um necessarily the correct answer but everything you do to the ground needs to be done with that idea of sustainability in mind and as long as there are people who are really working and and i think a lot of what we've talked about in this whole episode are 
talking about people who are pushing the envelope and driving the industry forward. Because when we're talking about wine, we are dealing with an industry with consumers that are quite conservative, aren't really resistant to a lot of change. And yeah, there's trends that come and go in and out of the market year in and year out, but it's the best practices that tend to endure. And I think what's happening in the wine industry across the whole worldwide, not just in Ontario and Nova Scotia, is quite exciting. And I think with what's happening with the planet in terms of climate change and other challenges that we're facing, uh, we're in good hands with people like the ones you interviewed in Nova Scotia and people like the people that Maya interviewed in her documentary. Mm-hmm. And Nova Scotia is super cool, guys. I did not, like when I was going out there, um, I, I was out there for non-wine related business, but when I was out there, I was thinking to myself, I was like, I don't know, I'm going to go and find a place to eat now and again. It's hopping. They have such cool food. And we, we're out of time. So you're, you're just going to have to take my word for it. When you go out to Halifax, like they're in, in Annapolis Valley, there's so many cool places to eat. So many, um, good places to get a good cocktail or craft beer, craft cider, and of clearly wine, uh, local wine and all the wineries. And Annapolis Valley is only an hour away from Halifax. So that's a quick jaunt. That's quicker than Toronto to Niagara if you're looking out to enjoy like wine country for a weekend. And I, I think people should do it. Go out to the Maritimes, check it out, and and drink some Nova Scotian wine. Why do I get the feeling that in two weeks we're going to be talking about Cantonese cuisine? I know we're talking about from the Maritimes, which is probably as some ways quintessentially Canadian and like, you know, Nova Scotia, New Scotland, right? Like European cold hearty food to Chinese food. And that's because uh, in a week from today, Andre, I am jetting to Hong Kong, the, the land where my folks were from and has a really, um, you know, important place in my heart. I am very much looking forward to living vicariously through you seeing everything that you're eating. I'm a big fan of dim sum, so I'm hoping you eat um, at least 2,000 dumplings while you're in Hong Kong. I I will aspire to do my best, and hopefully all the walking will help me burn it off. Well, I think uh, you're going to be hearing a lot about it from me over the next couple of weeks of Tasting Together. I think our next episode airs on November 22nd. So if you haven't subscribed yet, I would say please do so. And if you enjoy listening to us, leave us a five-star review. It means a lot to us. Reviews help other people listen to us and tell your friends, tell your family. And uh, thanks so much for taking the time to listening to Tasting Together. More food and drinks to come.